Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome here to the Mark Steiner Show and to Soundbites, produced here in Baltimore, out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also rebroadcast on Delmarva Public Radio. Uh, And as we get to this conversation, I want to encourage all of you to join me, the Daily Record in WEAA, on January the 30th in Annapolis for the 12th Annual Annapolis Summit. It's your chance to talk with Governor Hogan, Attorney General Frosch, Senate President Miller, and House Speaker Bush about issues affecting your lives, the things you care and think about, and have a chance to stand at the mic and speak to these newly elected leaders. Well, two of them are newly elected. The other two have been there for a long time. So we want you to join us January the 30th at the Calvert House from 7 to 10 a.m. 7 a.m. is the breakfast. 8 to t- eight o'clock, we talk to Governor Hogan, and at 10 a.m. come in the Speaker and the President, uh, and your chance to talk to them directly. So join us there, and for ticket information, uh, go to thedailyrecord.com slash Annapolis dash summit. That's thedailyrecord.com slash Annapolis dash summit, or call Claire Sheehan at 443-524-8101, 443 443- Five two four eight one zero one. You can email her at Claire dot Sheehan at the Daily Record dot com. But four four three five two four eight one zero one. The Annapolis Summit is sponsored by Stevenson University, Baltimore Gas and Electric, the Maryland State Education Association, the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, Alexander and Cleaver, and the Maryland Department of Housing and Community Development. So seats are going. So please join us. Uh, and uh, and on a ver- always a very important day where news is always broken, and you're there to be part of it. So now we open our conversation here on Soundbites, uh, as we have been doing, which is a series of conversations about, um, uh, in all of our programming here, uh, on Governor Hogan, just recently only been in office for a few days. Um, decisions have already been made, and decisions affecting education, which we talked about the other day, and more uh, issues around the budget. But then we're going to focus a bit from the environmentalist perspective on issues affecting agriculture and the environment. Uh, and we'll have all voices on here, as we always do, but we're focusing here now with, with these voices to talk about what, we, what, what they think about, what they've just seen, what may be the battles looming ahead for them, uh, and where the state may be going. We are joined here in studio by Elaine Lutz, who is attorney for the Maryland Office of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Elaine Lutz, welcome to the show. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Ann Jones is in studio. She is Director of Partners for Open Space. Ann Jones, welcome. Good to have you with us as well. Thank you very much. And Gerald Weingrads joins us by phone, attorney and adjunct professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, where he's taught a graduate course in Chesapeake Bay Restoration since 1988. Uh, served in the Maryland House of Delegates and the State Senate for many, many years. Uh, was the head of the Environmental Committee while he was in the Senate and was known as the conscience of the environment at that time when I first met him way back when in the 1980s. And Gerald Weingrad, welcome to the program. Good to have you back. Thank you. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk at steinershow.org. Uh, log on to our Facebook pages. Um, you can tweet me at Mark Steiner, but call, do call in at 410-319-8888. So the, not long after uh, Governor Hogan was sworn in, uh, Elaine Lutz, there was, a, it was an immediate announcement that the phosphorus management tool, which we've debated on the show, and we had a big debate on the PMT last week before he was sworn in. Uh, we had a debate on that. Um, from two different sides, and will continue, was uh, put on hold uh, or and, uh, because it not going into a rule, uh, Governor Martin O'Malley, then Governor Martin O'Malley had uh, uh, said that he was turning this into a rule, a law, uh, and that it had to go to the Maryland Register for 10 days, but Governor O'Malley didn't give it the 10 days, so Governor Hogan came in and said, we're taking this off the books. 
Yeah, we were really disappointed about that decision. As you may know, the PMT is a scientifically-based tool that has been in development for 10 years. And this set of regulations that was pulled at the last minute is not the first time that these regulations have been proposed. Um, The first two times, first January 2013 and then again in June 2013, had a very rapid schedule of implementation uh, that was alarming to some who might be impacted by it. And therefore, the latest version was um, very generous with a six-year phase-in and um, address a lot of the concerns that the administration heard from the farming community, which we thought was a um, very, it was a compromised um, position, and we were hopeful that uh, Governor Hogan was going to let the process that had happened up till now go ahead and and go through. And and I was not kind of shocked at this, General Weingrad, that that this didn't go through. I mean, Governor Hogan, before he, when he was candidate Hogan, made it very clear that he had real questions about the uh, phosphorus management tool when he was on this program, when he was running for governor. Um, and I also posited yesterday that, that um, you know, Governor Martin O'Malley is a very bright man and a very astute man and an astute politician as well, who I've been interviewing since 1993 when he was a city councilman. Um, and so, I mean, if you know that the that, that if when you pass, it's a rule, I'm saying that correctly, it's, it's, a, it's a rule, right? A regulation. A regulation, thank you very much. A regulation that to go into effect, it has to be in the Maryland Register for, for 10 days. Well, when he said it was going to be, uh, that regulation was going to happen, it, there was no time to have it in the Register for 10 days. So he knew it would fall down under Governor Hogan as soon as he got there. Uh, and since seemed to me politically, since Governor Malley didn't want to say no, he left it to Governor Hogan to say no, Gerald Weingrad. <laughs> well... Governor O'Malley clearly had years of opportunities to enact this mind-numbingly common-sense approach for the listeners that aren't aware of this kind of really esoteric phosphorus management tool. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that farmers cannot dump manure. All manure contains phosphorus from the animals, whether chickens or pigs or cows. They cannot dump manure with phosphorus in it, which all manure contains, on any farmland that already has enough phosphorus on it or in it. And that means it's already saturated because much of that, probably three-quarters of that, is going to run off into the creeks or stream or even can go down into the groundwater. So that's already the rule for for lawns in Maryland. That was passed under Governor O'Malley and signed into law that a lot of the the lawn fertilizer you buy now doesn't have phosphorus in it because of that. And it was the law for human-treated sewage biosolids. Once it's treated through an advanced treatment plant, for since 1985, you cannot put that on farmland or other lands that are saturated with phosphorus already. So you would think this would be common sense. This has been pending for 10 years, CBF's report in 2005 found that two-thirds of the soils on the eastern shore already saturate with phosphorus and it should have no fertilizers or manure put on them. The problem is nothing really strikingly has changed until the proposal by Governor O'Malley to amend the nutrient management regulations, which have been in force since uh, Governor Glendening's time, to simply say that this tool that's been developed by University of Maryland agricultural specialists and soil agronomists working with the agriculture community means that when you test your soils and they have too much phosphorus, no more manure on them because the manure accumulates and runs off and poisons our creeks and streams, causing dead zones, 
with algae growth and also even exacerbates the problem of getting human infections and actually results in the decline of our seafood industry and loss of bay grasses. So it's really a simple thing that you think they would do, but the governor, <coughs> um, both governors, big chicken is like big coal in West Virginia and Maryland. The chicken industry and the companies that um, own the own the uh, processing plants from Purdue on down, they are responsible for about 40% directly of the total farm income, the chicken industry. And if you add the grains that are grown, you're probably over 50% of the total farm. So this is an incredibly big part of the economy. And it's not going to really put anybody out of business. That's just hogwash. It's actually really chicken manure. It's not true. The cost is most of the cost can be recovered because of all the grants that farmers get. So you're just saying, do not put this down on your soils if it already has enough phosphorus. It just makes common sense. The final so, point that I would make is that the regulations are ridiculously delayed. The Maryland pledged under its cleanup program to the EPA to meet the pollution limits that they would have these regulations in effect by 2013. And we're into 2015, and farmers, all the farmers would not even have to comply, not six years, but not until 2022. The regs don't go into effect for anybody until 2016, and then you have six years after that. I mean, give me a break. This is just common sense, and this was developed in a science-based methodology at the University of Maryland. Please jump in, ladies. I mean, before we come back to PMT, which we're going to come back to, because I want to talk about what the politics of the next the session might mean, and of the next four years, uh, and we're going to be going to talk a bit about the, 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 your perspective on this, Ann Jones. Um, I was here to talk about program open space yeah. and okay, you know, the, the budget, the cuts that went on to that. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with program open space, it's funded by a designated portion of the transfer tax, and that is every time you buy a house, you pay one half of a percent of that cost, and it is supposed to go to the programs that preserve the best part of Maryland, preserve the agriculture, preserve the open areas, they go to parkland development, it preserves the heritage areas and provides funding for that. Uh, it does not, it was set up as its own fund because it is difficult to compete with all the competing needs that come up when the budget happens. Uh, everybody knows that schools, that hospitals, that everything has needs, roads, transportation. There are tremendous needs in the budget. And so when program open space started, the legislature wisely said, we cannot compete with those head-on, so let's set up a designated fund that's specifically for those purposes. So that was how Program Open Space started. It's a uh, nonpartisan raid that happens on Program Open Space. It's happened through Democratic administrations. It's happened through Republican administrations. And what we've had most recently is a promise to pay back when the, bud when the budgets were terrible, when the economy was really bad, uh, large amounts of money of the cash that came in from program open space was swept to pay for needed programs. Uh, we kind of went along with that. It certainly hurt the ability of the state and local governments and rural legacy areas and preserved farmlands to happen during that time period. But what has happened in this budget is there's $37.7 of cash that should come in this year is getting swept. That will not be repaid. There is an additional repeal of $50 million of prior authorizations for funded. So that's an $87.7 million shortfall this year in funding. And then there is no promise to repay that, and those sorts of deficits in this budget go out into the future for the next four years. 
So uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious what we what we think all this means for for the for the politics of the environment over the next four years and over this session and where the battles will be uh, and how they're going to be addressed. Um, I mean, when you uh, look at these regulations that were that were that were pulled back by Governor Hogan, the the appointments that he's made and made it very clear that farmers are not going to suffer as he puts it under his administration, um, and that. Uh, it looks as if from some people saying that given who's the new secretary of planning, that the ideas around smart growth that came out of Governor Glenn Denning's administration will not be strictly enforced or pushed uh, in terms of uh, in, in, in terms of regulations that they had because they only work if they are kind of implemented and pushed. I mean, what this says for the next four years and where this might take us, let me, let me start with Elaine and go to Jerry. Well, the, um, the ability of the agencies to implement the policies and and laws and regulations that we have already um, been able to put in place is a huge issue for us. Uh, As you said, what good is is previous regulation and policy if it's not being enforced and implemented? So we're hopeful that the agencies that oversee a huge amount of the programs are going to get additional funding to have the staff and resources that they need. Um, I think that your point about um, the agricultural community is... um, points to another big issue over the next four years. Um, it's not pointing a finger at the agricultural community. It is simply one portion of the state pollution load that needs to be addressed, just like the urban corridor, just like our homeowners. Everyone is doing their part. And when you look at the eastern shore, that basin is the only watershed in the entire state that is going in the wrong direction in terms of phosphorus loading. The USGS has been doing monitoring trends for decades, and the Eastern Shore Basin is the only rivers and streams in the state that are increasing in phosphorus pollution. So that points to an area that we absolutely need to find a solution for. Uh, We think that that solution is the PMT. Um, We are hopeful that when the Hogan administration said that he needed to review those, that we meant that they just needed to be reviewed by his administration, and then they'll go into place. But... This year, this session, I think that ensuring that some phosphorus solution for phosphorate-saturated soils will go into place, and that'll be our our big battle, that and keeping the um, budget kind of any required cuts, keeping them fair and equitable and making sure that our environmental trust fund and um, other environmental funds do not take an unfair cut. Gerald? Well... From my perspective of working on Bay issues since 1969 when I got out of the University of Maryland Law School, I, I can't remember a worse time. I can really, when you look at this from a more holistic standpoint, the problem is is that the environmental community has not matured into a forceful, cohesive political force. The environmental and community, you're saying? The environmental community has not. What is that, what do you, why do you say that? The environmental community is fragmented. The environmental community, some will not take on agriculture when it's plain as anything that you must resolve agricultural pollution if you're ever going to restore the bay. It's the biggest source of phosphorus, nitrogen, and sediment. It's the biggest source of bay-killing pollutants. And on the eastern shore, CBF's data I looked at on the website on the killing the nitrogen regulations from the power plants, which we haven't touched on, 80% of the eastern shore um, rivers are the, uh, are the phosphorus comes from agriculture. 
80%, and that is compares to Maryland overall as 50% comes from agriculture, and the Bay is 58%. The phosphorus tool is just one element. It's much more than that of controlling the other agricultural chemicals as, as, as well, the, the uh, nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizers on the eastern shore. So when I say this, it's as an environmentalist myself who've worked with all these agencies, I'm not saying they should rise up to the level of the NRA's effectiveness, but the <laughs> legislatures can vote with impunity to repeal stormwater fees like Harford County has just done, a lousy $12.50. The Baltimore County can lower theirs by a third, right. 39 to 26. Carroll County can pass a uh, can just tell the state to go fly a kite. Frederick County enacted a one penny thing in two years. It's raised nine hundred fifty dollars. And why can they do this? Because politically, there is no counterforce to getting away with this. Why can Governor Hogan kill the phosphorus tool? I mean, someone is engaging in some kind of mythology here to think that this is going to be resurrected like a phoenix and come back in any meaningful form. Why can he kill the nitrogen pollution from power plants that they delayed so late in the Mali administration that affects people's health with asthma in Baltimore City and all over the state as well as the Chesapeake Bay with the excess nitrogen coming from power plants? And so when you look at this, the answer is is that politically it doesn't matter to most elected officials anymore that they can be so virulently anti-environmental. What are the first thing that's cut every time in budget budget crunches, whether Democrat or Republican, or program open space money? It's supposed to be sacrosanct. It's supposed to be this was something put in in 1970 when people of vision saw Maryland being overdeveloped and the sprawl consuming so much open space. That money's supposed to be used for people's recreation and to purchase land to protect it from all the sprawl and development so people and their families can have a place to recreate, to go, go into a nature thing or a park, and they're stealing hundreds of millions of dollars of dedicated funds with almost out a whimper, without any real hope of ever getting this money back and put back into acquisition and losing all these lands forever, forever and ever, that this fund was set up. So when I look at this from a holistic standpoint, we need to really get together environmentally, the groups, and they have to work much more cohesively and politically. And if that doesn't happen, it's going to continue to spiral downward as we grow and grow and we sprawl and sprawl in this state. And the bay is is is, is just barely hanging on there. I mean, the crab populations are down. Oysters are a relic population. The shad fisheries never recovered, even though there was a moratorium over 30 years ago. So when you look at this, it's really it's a really saddening time, a sad time for me and many people that have been at this for 20 and 30 and 40 years. And you were going to add what's that in? Well, I was just going to say on the program open space, you had mentioned smart growth and what's the impact on that. Um, I think one of the tragedies of this funding not happening now, this has been a time in the market when you could get land at a relatively decent price. Um, you know, housing values have been down. A lot of programs have gone a long way toward meeting some goals that the state has, both in terms of preserved agriculture land, in terms of rural legacy areas. 
And by not doing that at this time, then you, you have the corollary program open space where you also have improving recreation. And you look at the fact that people are moving into the city. You have people that want to go in. My daughter lives in Patterson Park. She says the thing she loves there is she can go out. You know, she goes jogging around the park. She walks a dog in the park. The fact that those open areas are there are tremendously valued to the cities. They're tremendously valued to the rural areas. And this was the time when they were cut when they could have done so much good. So the, the question is, I think, the, the, it, it, I think in some ways what Gerald Wanger was saying, it does boil down in some senses to a, a political question. And how do organizations that think that these um, declarations by the governor where we might be going are a mistake? What, what do you do? In terms of what you heard Gerald Wangrad just describe, Elaine Lutz, I'm curious what the response is. Because there has been, you know, I've been covering this for 23 years in the Mark Steiner Show and also over the last um, uh, f- f- six years on this, on our sound bites and looking at Delmarva and more. Um, there is this divide, tactically speaking, strategically speaking. Um, that in some ways some people would argue might weaken the environmental side and the environmental movement if there is such a thing. Well, um, going back to the stormwater issue, we've seen that it was a really easy target in the last campaign um, for people to say that it was a tax, um, that the stormwater utility fee was some sort of tax. Um, And those were the sort of... um, things that were just not accurate. The stormwater utility fee was a very small, locally decided fee that went a long way. Already we're seeing a lot of projects in the ground that are um, reducing local flooding. They are um, you know, beautifying communities. They are filtering drinking water. It's going towards a lot of great projects. And when we can get people to actually understand that, when we get um, legislators to understand exactly what this um, um, what the purpose is and what the results are, then we get a lot more traction. But when, when environmental issues just become a um, political pawn, then that's really what, um, when the damaging stuff happens. As far as the environmental community, I would say we are um, continuously working at, at making our voices stronger on educating legislators on why these issues are important. And uh, recently, Chesapeake Bay Foundation put out an economic report that ties the economic benefit of environmental protection to the environmental protection actions we are taking because frequently, too frequently in politics, environment and economy are looked at as two um, adverse positions, whereas they're really the same side. They're they're two sides of the same coin. So we have to take a brief break, but when we come back, I I really want to kind of explore what strategically that you all think happens over the next four years and where that takes place. I mean, one the uh, one of the uns- one of the elephants in the room, the unspoken things in the room, is that there is a pol- there's political power in the development community, uh, in the uh, the community that uh, uh, in the, they call the paving contractors community, highway contractors community, and they're also directly tied to people in agriculture who think that the only the only way they can make a living is to have the land they have, and if they can- and if they're not going to pass it on, the only way they can go to retirement, they say, is to sell that land for development, which is to 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 have some retirement and to and that that takes smart growth and throws that into the back of the bus as well as open space and everything else. So, the question is, what where do you go from here? I mean, because they are there's a lot of political power there. Um, you saw, I mean, you uh, Jared Weingart alluded to it um, a moment ago and talked about Baltimore County and county and the, and the county executive cabinets uh, lowering the stormwater fee in Baltimore County uh, when all the kind of rivers and 
uh, streams in Water County that affect all the drinking water in the entire metro area are already polluted uh, and what that means. So I'm curious your comments on that. We'll be right back with all that. Stay with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. Don't go away and join us at 410-319-8888. Uh, it's your state, too. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, produced here in Baltimore, out of your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM and rebroadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We are here with Gerald Weingrad, former state senator and attorney and adjunct professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, Lane Lutz, attorney for the Maryland Office of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and Ann Jones, director of Partners for Open Space, numbers 410-319-8888. These uh, issues of the environment are ones that... uh, uh, will d- deeply affect our political discussions over the next uh, over the next um, session and over the next four years. Uh, and I, I just you know I know I know Gerald, you've been on the show a great deal over the last twenty some years, um, and uh, it's been a good thing. We've liked having you on the air with us. Uh, but I, I've I've watched the kind of arc of the discussion that we have had on this program, uh, and the, and I wonder why you think the political power. Um, of the environmental community is, for one of a better term, kind of in the face of all this, weak, or seems weak, seems not very strong. Well, when I left office voluntarily, I should have undefeated and only slightly brain dead. Uh, I, <laughs> as, I, as I said to a Republican <laughs> colleague of mine who was saying, you can't leave, you're too important on the environment. He was a great guy from Montgomery County, Howie Dennis. Uh, yeah, I remember Senator Dennis, yeah. Yeah, he ran for lieutenant governor right. with Bentley. And he, I, he, I said, Howie, I could have been a contender. He says, no, you were. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that my biggest disappointment since getting out of office beyond the decline of the Bay and where we are is the failure of the environmental community to mature as I thought it was to broaden its base, to bring in the saltwater sport fishing interest, to bring in some of the businesses that were pro-environment and green, to bring in the solar companies, to, to unify in a solidified, strong political voice, and also to have the biggest group, CBF, become much more politically involved. That is, they do not do because of their tax-exempt status what other groups like the League of Conservation Voters do and get involved in electoral politics. So this failure to mature and become a political force 
is at the root, not so much public opinion, not so much people caring. It's because the opportunity to do that has been seized by the anti-environmental forces, the forces of money-making and at all costs, and the anti-regulatory drumbeat that's occurred nationally that has also infected a state that is looked at as much more progressive with the Bay, like, like Maryland. And it is evidenced by, you know, in great... Um, greatly by the this past election. So you have county, uh, even in progressive counties, you have people running against the rain tax, the stormwater fee. My God, urban counties can never restore their water quality. People getting flesh-eating diseases and even their, their life being threatened, their dogs, like my county and all over the state, because of the status of the waters of the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, my friend Jay Sadowski, you know, the car mechanic that died infected while he was fishing to South River, really close to where Larry Hogan lives. If the water was so polluted, he got an infection and started eating up his leg, and he almost died. He had blood transfusions and treatments. And so you see the status, and it's the environmental community involves intellect and facts and working, you know, to convince people it's the right thing. But that has to be backed up politically. I mean, CBF study is good, showing how many hundreds of millions, even billion dollars the Bay is worth. But you need political action. You can't be naive and lay that out there and it's and think things are going to happen, that somebody's going to say, oh, yeah, we're putting Watermen out of business because of this. It doesn't work that way. I, I, I was there. So that lack of maturity is for different reasons, just like somewhat at the national level, and that each group has its own board, and the number one thing for groups as they grow is making enough money to pay staff and keep growing, just like a corporation. So and what can set in is a stasis, you know, that we, we, you know, you get to be, like, politically correct. I think the environmental community failed miserably to ever take on Martin O'Malley for eight years, even with the inter-county connector decision. That wasn't my battle at all. Believe me, I was kind of ambivalent on that. But on other issues, when he didn't put out the phosphorus site index, some of the groups just walked away. They barely did anything. They didn't take them to task. Like, oh, we got other things. We got to fight the LNG facility in Calvert County, or, you know, or, or we got to go for more money for agriculture so, or whatever. So Judge, it's, it's, John, I'm just joining us. We only have a few minutes left, and I, I, I do want to pick up what you said. I mean, the, and I was looking at the CBF and what you, you all put out. I mean, that, that 23% of the pollution, the, the phosphorus we're going into our bay, uh, comes from wastewater, and um, um, another 20% from pollutant runoff. Yet, you know, I think there were some political issues with, with people feeling that, that the stormwater tax affected just individuals and not a lot of businesses and not the people who built the houses and not the people who built the highways where most of the runoff is coming from. So it ended up being a political football. Well, you well know, the, the, the flush tax was the biggest success in the last I, I understand 15 that. years. But I, I, just, I just want to get – I understand that, but I just wanted to okay. get, just go to Elaine. We only have like three minutes left in the segment, so I want to get Elaine back. That's, that's cool, Joe. Well, I think that um, the – Nonpartisanship of, of my organization is something that helps us work collaboratively with all stakeholders on both sides of the aisle. Um, so while there is some weakness to that model, I think there's a lot of strength. 
Um, I think that also in any, um, no matter what happens in a um, election or during political campaigns, you won't find anyone who voted against the environment. Sometimes people don't see the connection between what they are voting mm-hmm. for and the environmental impacts of those choices. So I would just say that I hope that all the citizens out there who are environmentally minded are concerned with their local rivers and streams. Um, join the, our environmental movement and contact your legislators. They're the ones who... Every legislator I've ever talked to says I'm representing my constituents. And if they hear from their constituents that the environment is important to them, then I think that is um, maybe the greatest thing that that citizens can do. We have have about a minute left in this segment, and we'll we'll be coming down to more and more in the overcoming months. But, Andrew, I want a final thought here. Just very quickly, I always say that what I'm doing is lobbying for a legacy in an age of pothole politics because so much of what's happening now is responding to the problem of the day. And the kind of programs that we all work with really have a long-term perspective to them, and they're, they're the legacy that we're looking for at going forward. I, I want to thank all these guests. This has been, always been a good discussion. Joel Weingrad is, is one of the greatest fighters we ever had around the environment in the state. I always thank him for taking his time to come with us, Gerald. It's always great to talk to you and uh, spurring us on uh, and uh, to take no prisoners sometimes, which I think we need to have around us. Elaine Lutz, attorney for Maryland Office of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation that has uh, just put out a very scathing report uh, on what has happened. You can we'll be long, um, linking to that on our website. Uh, and Ann Jones, Director of Partners for Open Space. Pleasure to meet you and have you in the studio. Thank you. Thank you. Reminding on the way to this quick break that the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part uh, by the Maryland State Education Association. From school funding to testing, you can learn about the important issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at marylandeducators.org. That's marylandeducators.org. Or go to steinershow.org uh, and click on the Maryland State Education Association's banner. Uh, we're going to take a very brief break, and when we come back from this break, we'll be talking with Carol Morrison uh, about a new project she's working on and her view about how you can change agriculture on the shore. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hmm. Here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, we're about to have another conversation with Carol Morrison, who you've heard before on this program. Uh, she is what some people are calling a transitional farmer who went from producing industrial contract chickens for Purdue to pasteurized, raised, free-range eggs. Uh, and uh, her farm is called Bird, Bird's Eye View Farm in Pocomoke City. And she's really launched a crowdfunding campaign uh, on barn raiser to raise funds to expand her business, which we'll talk about as well. And, Carol, welcome. Good to have you back with us. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here. So, I mean, I know the last time we spoke on the air, you were – Talking about taking your farm and really wanting to uh, um, expand it, uh, but just for us, people might just be who might just be tuning in uh, and hearing you for the first time, might just never heard us before in the air. Very quickly, I mean, talk a bit about where you were and where you are now, just very quickly, so people get a sense of what what you're talking about. Well, for 23 years, we raised chickens under contract um, in the industrial model. Uh, after the release of Food Inc., um, our contract was terminated, and we left the barns. <clears throat> excuse me, we left the barns empty uh, for three years. Um, and then, after seeing different types of farming all across the country, I was fortunate enough to be able to see that. Uh, we decided to go ahead and transition one of our poultry houses into a pasture-raised egg operation um, to equate the differences in 
one of our poultry houses when we were contract farming, um, there would be 27,200 chickens wow. in seven weeks raised. Uh, now we have 1,200 chickens in one chicken house. So that's the difference of scale that we're doing and the difference in, in production manners. Um, we are totally antibiotic-free, uh, arsenic-free. No animal byproducts are fed, uh, and the hens are on pasture. Unless, of course, you know, the weather is, is horrible, like the storm we're expecting. Um, or we've got a hurricane or some type of thing like that. And we do put them in at night um, to protect them from predators such as raccoons and foxes. So, the, the, and I said, I'm, just for you experientially, um, and for our listeners to understand, what, what, what was the change like? What, what's the difference in your way of living, your way of farming, your way of being daily from being uh, what's called an industrial farmer raising chickens? In, in your case, for Purdue, it could be any company you're, uh, people are raising uh, chickens for. Well, number now. one, um, we're, we're independent. Um, we're our own boss. We decide what we want to do, how we want to do it. Um, the difference in, in the animals, the chickens, um, are, are just unbelievable. We use a heritage breed, well, breeds, I should say. Uh, we have Rhode Island red hens, uh, Delawares, and barred rocks. Um, their genetics are not all mixed up to perform a certain way. Uh, they've just been left alone, and they're your traditional breeds of chickens. Uh, they behave much differently. These chickens here um, are never still. They always want to be into something or doing something, um, <laughs> you know, and it's it's just crazy, like little kids um, running around. And, you know, when a person, when we go over to, to visit with them um, or we have visitors on the farm, uh, these, these hens will follow you anywhere you go. It's like the visitors are there to see them and, oh, good, we have company. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that right there is just totally enjoyable. Um, you know, it's kind of hard for me in a way because I have all these pets. Um, but, you know, it's 1,200 of them, and you're not supposed to make your farm animals your pets. But I thought, Yeah, I thought that was a rule. Yeah, they've, they've become that way. <laughs> So it's uh, that part there is totally different. Um, them being allowed outside, um, they they can come and go as they please. We cut holes in the sides of the chicken houses um, to make what they call pop doors, and they open up. We open them first thing in the morning, um, and the hens can do whatever they please. They have plenty of pasture to forage on. They love bugs. They love worms. They eat grass, clover, all types of things. Um, you know, and they just run around. They dig holes, uh, lots of holes. It's one of their favorite things uh, so that they can – it starts out as dust bathing, but they just keep digging. Um, and then it reminds me of, you know, them being like in foxholes hiding from one another. <laughs> uh -huh. it's, it's, it's fun. Um, before, it wasn't so fun. Um, by the time we reached the end of our uh, industrial farming career, uh, we had pretty much had it with the whole system. Um, it wasn't fun. We didn't like it. 
So the differences are just, um, you know, one end of the spectrum to the other. So I, I'm a couple of things I'm just really curious about before we talk in a moment just about the thing you're, how you're trying to expand and why you have to do it the way you're doing it. Supposing you a farmer was like you and they had two, four houses, whatever that number was, where they were raising industrial chickens that, that you said how much you say th- twenty five, thirty thousand to a to a. Well, in each house now, uh, with the size that they're doing, um, there's about roughly forty thousand chickens in one poultry house. It's a lot of chickens. A lot of chickens. So, so if, you know, you had four, that would be 160,000 chickens. So if you wanted, let's say you wanted to, to, to leave that kind of system and, and do a different kind of farming, but continue to raise chickens, but you didn't want to raise just egg-laying chickens, like, as you're doing, but you were interested in meat poultry. How would that change? How um, possible would that be? We had considered uh, doing meat birds, and... The problem with that is that it's not doable. Um, it's not feasible simply because there are no independent processing facilities on the peninsula. We would have to go all the way to Pennsylvania to process the birds at a USDA-inspected facility. Um, so it's, it's an impossibility to really do a feasible farming business that way. That's why we went with the eggs, um, because we are able to market um, and we don't have to worry about slaughter of the bird. So uh, that, and part of the issue of trying to do things a different way is what you're describing. For, for, for a, a, um, I mean, the industrial farming system of raising chickens for mass production is not going away tomorrow morning if it ever goes away. But if to build a a different and alternative system, where people are raising free range chickens uh, for meat on a mass basis, part of what you're describing here, besides even the sales, um, is that that the infrastructure doesn't exist. Exactly, exactly. Our our chicks come all the way from New Mexico. Our feed comes out of Pennsylvania. Um, you know, and as I said, there are no uh, processing facilities here on the peninsula. So all of your infrastructure, um, your needs to, to even start up aren't here. Everything is owned by the companies. Let's talk about what you're doing now. So you, you want to take you want to take what you have. I've been to your farm before, so you, you have these two former um, uh, houses that housed tens of thousands of chickens. You transferred, transform one into a place where your uh, egg-laying birds, birds I view farm, go in at night and lay their eggs and and then you have this hand-washing operation. You do it all by yourself and then market it by yourself and, and, uh, and get it to Whole Foods and whoever else buys your eggs. So what, what are you attempting to do now? Um, what we're attempting to do now, we've got a three-phase uh, project that we'd like to do. And in our first phase, first of all, we cannot meet the demand um, for the eggs with what we have right now. Uh, we sell out every week, and um, oftentimes I'm having to short orders simply because there's not enough eggs. Um, so the market is really great. There's plenty of room there to expand. Um, on our farm, we do not intend to become an industrial farm. Uh, the maximum amount of chickens that we will have is 5,000 hens at any one time. 
um, part of the phase in the uh, the first part is where you said, um, you know, I wash by hand. Everything here is done by hand. Uh, we collect, we wash, we grade, um, and we pack by hand. Uh, the washing in itself takes me about five hours a day. Wow. Yeah. Every, a day. <laughs> you know, and, and put that in with everything else that needs to be done here on the farm. Um, it's a long day. So you, you wash by hands all these hundreds of eggs and you, and you package them. Yes, and then we pack them. Um, they're packed in, in, you know, 12, a dozen carton, and they're packed into cases and put into the cooler. Um, so, it, you know, it's the washing in itself. Um, we want to get an egg washing machine, um, which would, you know, significantly, excuse me, it would significantly reduce the manual labor and the time, um, you know, to do that one chore. So that would be part of it. Um, we also want to take our second poultry house and convert that to accommodate 2,000 more hens, um, you know, and, and to condition the pastures and whatnot so that they have the same thing that what we've done in the first chicken house. So that would be the expansion of the business here. However, we still will not be able to meet the demand um, for the eggs, even with increased production on our farm. So the third part of our, our uh, expansion here is to bring in other farms um, within the area that are either standing open, uh, you know, which we have plenty of here on the peninsula, where contracts have been terminated for one reason or another. Um, so, you know, you could put farms back into production. Do you think or th- I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. If Karen. there's farmers who want to transition out of what they're doing, um, you know, and try something different. So we, we would really like to not only expand what we're doing here, but to be able to offer something to other farmers as well. To kind of lead the way and teach others how to do this. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's fairly easy, um, except for getting what you need to get started as far as the chicks and feed. Um, that's the biggest problem. So, because how did you get the money to do that from the very beginning? Uh, we used everything we had available, um, personally. Uh huh. And, and so, but but it paid off. Yes, yes, it it definitely paid off. Um, it can be a sustainable farm, and it can be a feasible uh, proposition. So, uh, you know, um, as, as, as you're describing this, um, I, I try just thinking about what, what the possibilities might be. I mean, I, we, I don't know how many farmers we're talking about that could make transitions, would want to make a transition um, or fearful of making a transition, those who just rather be where they are because they're making decent money and don't want to move. Um, so there's probably a mix. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I so, and there always probably will be a mix for our, in our lifetime. Oh, sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. I'm sure there will be. And, and you know, that's the, the beauty of the thing, that right now there isn't a choice or there doesn't appear to be a choice um, in methods of farming. It's, it, you know contract or nothing 
um, at least this way, there is a choice. So, interesting, a choice in farming. So, t- talk a bit about your, your thoughts. I, mean, I know you think about this a lot, and the two of you probably talk about this a lot, and uh, with other farmers who are thinking along those lines but don't know how to get there. Um, uh, but but what, what is your vision for what that could mean for the farmer and the shore? Well, first of all, there could be independent farmers again. Um, you know, the, the dollars would stay more in the community um, if you have viable farms that are spending money in the community. There would be opportunities for uh, feed mills. There would be opportunities for uh, independent hatcheries. There would be opportunities even for independent processing, um, you know, that wasn't owned by an industrial-sized uh, company. The, the possibilities are endless. Um, the problem is getting to that point of building that infrastructure and being able to not have to scramble all over the country to get what you need um, just to farm in a different manner. The, this is intriguing because what you're talking about is the possibility of something that exp- if an infrastructure could be built. You're talking about the possibility that, that, that small locally owned businesses, or, or locally owned businesses at any rate, however small they are or not is the question, could be built. Whether Correct. it's people raising the, the, the chicks, the hatcheries you're talking about, the slaughtering facilities, um, transportation, all of that. Yes, that's a, uh, I, I didn't mention transportation. Um, you know, that is another issue is, is finding someone to uh, haul the eggs for you because they do have to be refrigerated. Right. And, you know, there are no sources here locally for hauling of eggs. Um, I've done it mostly uh, in in coolers with uh, ice freezer packs uh, to keep them cool and delivered to individual stores. So that's another whole avenue there that could be opened up where, you know, trucks, trucking companies could have a distribution-type business going. Well, I hope this expansion works for you. And, and again, we want people to, to, to explore this more. You can, um, uh, a couple things. You can first go to www.barnraisers. Is it barnraiser or barnraisers? Barnraiser. Barnraiser.us. Yeah. Slash projects, um, and 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 you have your own website too at Bird's Eye, don't you? Um, no, we do Facebook. You do Facebook? Yes, it's uh, under under my name, Carol Morrison. So go to either place, uh, but uh, this is a kind of a, a well worth it in terms of uh, helping to build a different kind of farming community, uh, and uh, something that, uh, that will increase our conversation and maybe our and our choices. And Carol Morrison, who now. Uh, owns Bird's Eye View Farm in Pocomoke City uh, and went to a new way of doing things. Uh, most of our eggs are now being sold through Whole Foods. Carol, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you, Mark. Good to talk to you, too. And uh, and uh, have fun in the snow. Uh, you, too. Stay warm. All right. <laughs> the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Delmarva is Christopher Rank. 
To hear the show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. For Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.